Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Welcome back, everybody. This is the second episode of the named podcast, Safety Perspective from Region 6. Today, we're going to be starting a three-part series relative to fatality and catastrophe investigations, also known in OSHA lingo as fat cat investigations. And with me, I've got my good friend and partner, Frank Davis. Frank, how are you today? I'm well, John. You doing all right? I am. I am. It was good to see you the other day and present with you out in San Antonio. And it was great presenting with you live and in person uh, for the first time in a few months. Yeah, no, it was, it was great. It was great. So, Frank, let's get this going with regard to the podcast and, and the topic of fatality and catastrophe investigation. Let's talk a little bit more about what qualifies as a fat cat. Obviously, a fatality is part of that. For purposes of the catastrophe, you know, what in OSHA parlance is is really a catastrophe as opposed to you having to stumble and tearing your jeans a little bit? Right. So the catastrophic event in in OSHA parlance is going to be generally a reportable event. So, um, an injury that results in a hospitalization, an inpatient hospitalization, an amputation, or a loss of an eye. That's typically where you're going to see them open an inspection based on a catastrophic event because it's led to a serious physical injury that required some significant treatment. And whenever we have that type of event, that's when we have to start start thinking about the best way to to react to that event and prepare for the investigation that is very likely forthcoming. And from the standpoint of the reporting, what are the obligations that employers have when they have a catastrophe in their workplace? And how do they effectuate the reporting obligation? 
Right. So rather than calling it a catastrophe, I, I suppose I would call it a reportable event, reportable with a P, not a C, not a recordable event, but a reportable event. There is a distinction. We've talked about that in a previous podcast, but the reportable event is the inpatient hospitalization uh, following a, a, a serious accident. So if an individual gets hurt at work and within 24 hours of getting hurt at work, they are admitted to a hospital on an inpatient basis to receive treatment, then the employer has an obligation to call it into OSHA, to the local OSHA area office within 24 hours, or they can call the 800 hotline if it's outside of the regular business hours. You can report it using the electronic reporting means But the inpatient hospitalization or uh, a loss of an eye or an amputation, those are all reportable events that we would consider a, a catastrophic a result to a catastrophic injury uh, that, um, that will, will cause OSHA to consider whether to conduct an inspection. And I'd like to add a couple of points to what you said there, Frank. You know, relative to the calling it in, one of the mistakes clients often make is not calling it into the right location. Um, so you call it into the area office for the area that you're in, or if it's after hours, you call the 800 number for the after hours reporting. And with respect to the hospitalizations, it's an inpatient hospitalization for medical treatment. And it's not strictly an inpatient hospitalization for observation. And it's the, the clock starts ticking once the company, once the employer becomes aware of the event, so that 24-hour period of time, if let's say, for instance, your employee went home after experiencing something, ends up going to the hospital, ends up admitted for inpatient treatment, and you don't find out until the next morning at 9 o'clock when they haven't arrived at work, that 9 o'clock notification, so to speak, that that employee was admitted to the hospital, that's when the clock starts ticking on the 24 hours. But And, and you know, I'd add that OSHA has the expectation that an employer will try to figure out if the employee's been admitted for reporting purposes. In other words, OSHA is critical if, an employ, if they think an employer has put their head in the sand to avoid finding out about the inpatient hospitalization. Correct, correct. Uh, but there are, you know, there's some nuances there and, and, you know, employers need to be kind of paying attention to, you know, what exactly the nuances are uh, before they get going. So talking about the, the reporting it to OSHA and kind of, you know, the type of thing that qualifies as a fatality catastrophe um, or fat cat for OSHA purposes, when you report a fat cat, does that always trigger an inspection? Yeah, no, of course not. You know, there's uh, it, it, there's different areas that will trigger an inspection. For instance, if it's a, an emphasis program uh, or an injury associated with a, an emphasis program item, maybe heat stress or heat illness, for instance, uh, that's likely to 
to trigger uh, an inspection. But if it's uh, a bee sting uh, and somebody has an allergic reaction, uh, that's usually less likely to trigger an inspection. It's more likely to trigger the rapid response investigation letter, uh, allowing an employer to respond on their own to the uh, to investigate and, re- and uh, draw conclusions and inform OSHA about the results of the investigation, and and um, and that usually closes the case for something that's of less interest to OSHA. What do we consider the kind of major topic? areas that we're going to be talking about for purposes of this podcast as relates to fatality catastrophe uh, incidents, Frank. I mean, so, give, our, give our audience a little preview of what we're planning on talking about. Yeah. So, you know, the overview that we generally think about following a fat cat is we've got to manage the accident first, right? Take care of uh, the individuals involved in the accident and, and those around uh, the accident and then think about making the scene safe so nobody else can get hurt. Uh, we've got uh, some interaction with uh, with first responders that typically follows a, a fat cat event. We've also got the OSHA reporting that we just discussed. And then flowing from that after after the the scene is contained and controlled and and uh, the injured folks have been treated or or removed from the scene. Uh, then we have the fallout. We have the employee relations, the communications with employees, communications with the injured person's families. You may want to talk about retaining counsel to help protect the file. Talk about post-accident investigation uh, and how to generally how to make that a privileged investigation. We, we often think about the accident report, uh, how much we want to put in one that's going to be public and maybe how to preserve one that has real root cause analysis involved. Uh, we'll also want to talk about uh, taking witness statements and maybe important concepts to consider when compiling those witness statements. Uh, also, and I might have put this ahead of what I just discussed, we want to probably preserve the scene depending on the nature of the scene. OSHA may ask the employer to preserve the scene and then uh, frequently OSHA will send a letter requiring the scene be preserved. So want to make sure you're thinking about that element. And then lastly, you you get responses to the press. Uh, There may be unions involved. There may be public and government officials involved depending on what type of of accident it was, whether there was a spill of some sort or a release of, you know, H2S gas, you just, you know, it's, it's just specific issues related to a specific accident sometimes garner different responses from the public and from, from the government. Uh, and those are the general considerations that we have. There may also be, uh, and we won't address them in our podcast series here, but there might also be civil lawsuits that flow from it all and um, and, uh, and whether to retain counsel, when to retain counsel on the civil side and uh, issues related to coordinating investigations between third-party civil counsel and your OSHA counsel. While we're not going to be talking about the civil litigation in kind of the traditional sense of the word, I mean, some of what we're going to talk about will involve some crossover there because some of what we do relative to the fat cat investigation may have some implications relative to civil litigation. So 
we're not going to be talking kind of without an eye towards the potential for civil litigation or without an, an awareness of the potential for civil litigation. But we're not going to focus in this podcast on civil litigation as part of a fat cat response. And Frank, for purposes of this podcast, I think you and I have decided that we're going to kind of narrow things down a little bit um, because we're only going to do a three-part series. And, and one part of the series is going to be um, preserving and documenting the scene. The second part is going to be reports of whatever ilk they may be, privilege and witness statements and privilege. And then the last piece being communications, whether they be to the employee, to the press, to uh, regulators, to local governments, what have you. And today we're going to be talking about preserving and documenting the scene. Yeah, I think that's the right way to, to approach it. And in, in terms of preserving and documenting the scene, when we were presenting in San Antonio, we had a question raised. And I think that a lot of folks out there, you know, simply due to the fact that fatality catastrophe investigations are not everyday investigations, have a lot of questions about just the basic, for lack of a better term, mechanics of the process and have you know, sort of some of the, the, the questions that anybody's going to have relative to somebody died, somebody got seriously hurt, and now what do I do? So why don't we start off with this, Frank, and, and could you explain to the audience why it is critical to preserve and document the scene? And in fact, I'd argue that sometime preservation of the scene is in fact the documenting the scene because the scene can be kind of fluid. I agree with that. The scene can be fluid in a lot of cases, but we've got to we've got to be able to understand what occurred, and the the best way to ensure that we can understand what occurred is to 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 get our um, to get our eyes on the scene as it existed uh, or as near as possible to the way it existed at the time of the accident. Uh, it, this will bleed over a little bit into the, the privilege discussion that we're going to have in the next podcast. The way I like to start this analysis is I like to start with retained counsel, uh, whether it's a, an in-house counsel could arguably fill this role too, but I like to start with retained counsel so we can begin collecting documentation, taking photographs and documenting the scene in a way that we can at least argue is privileged. Uh, that includes uh, taking photographs, maybe taking videos, uh, and uh, preserving it photographically so we can refer to a, uh, or visually so we can refer back to the scene in the future. The preservation of the scene immediately following um, a fatality or a catastrophic event, sometimes OSHA will ask, as I mentioned earlier, will ask the employer to preserve the scene. And we can talk about what that means in details because there in detail because there have been some issues where employers tried to alter the scene and got in trouble for altering the scene after OSHA issued its preservation letter. But there's also an advantage to preserving the scene, I think, from a good faith credibility standpoint, if um, if it's possible uh, and reasonably practical to um, to preserve it in its original state. Uh, but it also helps whenever you you can get. Uh, it may help. Um, I like to think about whether to to involve an expert early on or uh, somebody with some expertise 
to help evaluate what may have happened. You know, a good example of that is uh, you have a forklift accident and it's difficult to ascertain exactly what happened. And so you may want to get somebody out there that is, a, for instance, a skid mark expert, right? An accident reconstructionist that can look and and determine if maybe the the forklift operator was exceeding the speed or taking the turn too sharply, uh, because that can help contribute to a defense of employee misconduct, of course, or at minimum, it can contribute to a defense of saying that the employer didn't have knowledge. And as you know, John, employer knowledge is a critical element uh, of that OSHA must establish in order to show a violation of of a standards that the employer had knowledge uh, that the employee um, was going to engage in an activity that that broke a work rule. Uh, and if we understand the cause of an accident, it, it gives us an opportunity to create a better defense. And by preserving the scene and getting somebody out there with some expertise, uh, I've found that that often builds my case. I don't know about you, John. Do you have any examples like that? Well, I mean, most of the cases that I have where we have some sort of uh, fat cat involved, you know, I mean, first of all, people should not be surprised by the speed at which plaintiff's lawyers move relative to issuing preservation letters. They should not be surprised at the speed at which OSHA moves to issue preservation letters. And, you know, a lot of times before we actually get all that terribly into a situation, you know, we, we've got a preservation letter, and so we're under legal obligation to actually preserve the scene. But you know, from the standpoint of the process itself, you know, generally speaking, I agree with how you describe things. I mean, it, it's important both from the standpoint of the video and photographic evidence. It's also important from the standpoint of just the evidence itself. Um, you know, unfortunately, I've had some cases, and I'm sure you've had some cases as well, where you know, folks are disturbed by the scene of the um, accident. You know, there's blood, there's bodily fluids, whatever the case is, they want to clean it up right away. And cleaning it up right away, you know, all in, in every case is going to alter the evidence, you know, because you're going to lose the position of where the body was, you're going to lose the orientation, what have you. Of course, while avoiding any contact with bloodborne pathogens, because you don't want to be exposed. Correct. Correct. And let me, let me piggyback on what you said just a minute ago about cleaning up the scene afterwards. You know, sometimes it's unavoidable. Sometimes the scene gets cleaned up on its own, especially if you have first responders like a fire department, fire departments have their own bloodborne pathogen teams that will, or maybe they're all trained in bloodborne pathogens, depending on the department. And sometimes they clean it up. You don't really have a choice. It just gets cleaned up. Correct. Correct. But it, it's, I mean, and, and we talked about this out in San Antonio, rather than the employer doing it, that you have a third party qualified contractor kind of come in and, and take that off your hands so that you don't have to. You're right. Cause that's somebody who does it all the time. Right. It's like any job that, that you don't do on a regular basis. It's, it's a more difficult job and there's more peril in, in doing something you don't do every day, especially when it's something as serious as that. And Frank, on the issue of OSHA's authority to compel an employer to preserve the scene, issuing the evidence preservation letters, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was 
you know, there, there's a host of misconceptions about how broad OSHA's authority is with respect to those orders relative to preservation. And, and starting off with the first misconception, you know, a lot of folks think that OSHA can just compel employers anytime there's a fat cat to shut their entire operation down. Is that something OSHA can do? No, OSHA doesn't have stop work authority uh, unless they get a, an order from a court. Uh, there, there are federal agencies that have stop work authority, but OSHA is not one of them. So they can't shut down uh, the entire business just because there's a, a fat cat event. Uh, they can issue letters and and put employees on notice that they believe that the workplace constitutes a dangerous place to work. And uh, there are some ramifications that an employer has to deal with from that. That doesn't happen very often, though. I, I can't think of a time in the last 10 years when I've had to deal with that. Uh, but, the, but the ability to just tell an employer, you got to lock the doors and and cease operations. That's that's not that's not something that uh, an OSHA compliance officer has in uh, their bag of tricks. And in terms of the sort of the breadth or the scope of the preservation letter, what is OSHA's authority in terms of how broad it can be relative to that fat cat and whatever evidence they're trying to preserve? You know, that's a great question, and it's a difficult one to answer without knowing a specific set of facts. I'll give you an example. There was a, a fatality at a location somewhere in the USA. It was a repair shop, a truck repair shop, and uh, an individual was working underneath a rig, big old truck rig, and had jacked it up to do some work, removed a wheel from the truck and was uh, working working on an axle and, and did only jacked it up using a hydraulic floor jack uh, or a version of a hydraulic floor jack. You can imagine it's got to be beefy big and be able to lift up a, a big old heavy uh, tractor. And, you know, it looked like a durable, strong jack that could hold anything up forever. And they did not brace it with the jack stands. So the jack compressed, lost hydraulic pressure, compressed, and actually trapped the individual underneath the truck, and it ultimately killed that individual. And the bay next to them, it was an open bay. There wasn't a truck in the open bay. It was supposed to be covered by a grate because there was an open pit that was uh, about five foot deep underneath it, protection. And so they had a grate that was supposed to go over, but that grate had been removed. And um, and they had video cameras in there. So when the fatality was reported, OSHA immediately issued its preservation letter. And the employer did an excellent job of preserving exactly the area where the fatality had occurred, where the truck had landed on the mechanic. At the same time, the employer took the, the grate that had been removed from the open pit and they put it on top of the open pit. And and covered up the open pit. So by the time OSHA got there to conduct the inspection, the pit had been covered like it should have been covered. Uh, and and they began just the inspection of the truck. Well, OSHA noticed that there were video cameras in that repair bay. And when they went back and they watched the video, they saw that after the preservation letter had been issued, the employer put the grate over the open pit. And prior to doing that, they during the workday, they could see people stepping over the pit, jumping over the pit, walking all around the pit while it was an open pit. And um, and OSHA actually prosecuted the employer 
for altering the accident scene by replacing that grate over that pit. I I can see the employer's perspective and I can see OSHA's perspective in that because it was the open pit was in the immediate proximity of the of where the accident occurred, you know, less than ten feet away. Um, but to the, in the employer's mind, the accident scene was more limited. So, like I say, I think the uh, the scope of a preservation letter can sometimes be left to interpretation based on the facts. Well, so two things came to mind when you were answering my question. Question number one. What is the consequence for failing to comply with a preservation letter issued by OSHA? Well, so they can prosecute you for spoliation of evidence, altering a, an evident, altering an accident scene, and they, there actually can be criminal criminal penalties for uh, for what they might consider hiding evidence or altering a scene to to hide evidence. It's, uh, it goes along with the the OSHA rule that thou shalt not lie to OSHA, and if they if they believe that the employer has altered the scene to try to conceal a violation, then they have the right and they have pursued employers uh, for for that um, that that, uh, that concealing evidence uh, and. Um, and that that can carry with it real criminal consequences. Second question that flows from your answer is this. Prior to receipt of an OSHA evidence preservation letter or scene preservation letter, does an employer still have obligations to preserve the scene in any way, shape, or form? Maybe, but in my experience, it's highly unlikely that OSHA is going to uh, throw their hat into that ring. If there's not an evidence preservation letter, I have yet to see OSHA go after an employer. I've seen OSHA get frustrated that the area office failed to issue uh, an evidence preservation letter or a scene preservation letter, but I've, I've never, ever seen them go after the employer. Uh, now that said, there may be an impact in the analysis as it relates to good faith and employer's good faith. So I would consider all of those, uh, all of those risks and rewards. If uh, if I have an accident scene that OSHA hasn't asked us to preserve, I'd, I'd be real thoughtful about what is the appropriate next step with regard to altering it or preserving it.
want to kind of clarify for our audience, spoliation of evidence is kind of fancy legal term for destruction of evidence or spoiling evidence. And in the legal context, in the civil litigation context, you know, there are some ramifications in the form of instructions in the OSHA context. You know, it, it, the ramifications really look more like criminal charges for obstructing an investigation. Frank, we've been going a while. I've got one last question I'd like to ask you, and then we'll, we'll wrap this podcast up. You know, when these spoliation of evidence letters come in, you know, it obviously creates kind of a hard stop for anybody doing anything with that scene. And, you know, nobody is supposed to be doing anything that's going to in any way alter, modify, whatever the evidence that relates to that incident. From the standpoint of, and this is kind of going to the documenting because evidence collection is part of documenting the scene. From the standpoint of kind of documenting the scene by testing the evidence, by um, you know taking evidence into, for lack of a better term, kind of protective custody, OSHA oftentimes will come in and want to take pieces or parts and send it out to the Salt Lake Technical Center for evaluation. The parties um, a lot of times object to that and you know, want you know, kind of independent third party uh, private labs to take a look at the evidence. How does that get worked out? How do you work that out when that issue comes up? Generally, if it's just OSHA that I'm dealing with, with regard to a preservation letter, I work with the area office directly. Uh, say they want it preserved, and um, uh, and I might, I've even had situations where they agree to share experts. They'll let me hire an expert to do the evaluation, and they'll share my expert. It really depends on the personality of the office and who's managing it uh, as to how to resolve that. But I think that's, again, a factual analysis and a conversation you've got to have with OSHA. Because you want to make sure that you preserve uh, the, the, the parts of equipment that you need, uh, just like OSHA wants to preserve it. And, and sometimes, candidly, it takes a long time. If you, let, if you release an item like that to OSHA, it takes a long, long time to get it back, longer than, than it feels like it should in many cases. So uh, that's frequently something I'll try to negotiate on the front end if I can. In my experience, OSHA's usually going to be able to get the authority to take it from you, uh, even if they have to go to court to get that authority. For purposes of, you know, kind of the other part of the scenario where you have civil litigants that are potential civil litigants that have popped up, you have uh, OSHA asking to preserve evidence. You've got your own interest in preserving evidence. Does OSHA's authority kind of trump the others or, or how does that normally play out in your experience? I haven't had an experience where uh, where I still possess something that OSHA wanted to take by the time that the civil litigation got their spoliation letter out or their uh, preservation letter out. Uh, so I, I don't have an answer for you, John. That's fair. I, I'll share in my experience, uh, and I've had a number of them where, I mean, quite frankly, one of the first really bad ones I had in Texas before OSHA even arrived at my client's facility, the claimants had gone to federal court and secured an order requiring us to preserve the evidence. It's been my experience that OSHA is generally reasonably flexible in working with the parties 
to reach a resolution that's amicable to all. Um, that's not always the case. You know, kind of you indicated there was, you know, what the temperature is of the area office. And I think that that kind of plays into all aspects of our practice. Uh, but with respect to, you know, when you have a bunch of civil litigants that are raising their hands and saying things need to be preserved, particularly when OSHA may be a little bit behind that uh, curve of preservation letters, it seems to me that OSHA has been pretty cooperative. Frank, I appreciate your insights on preserving the scene in a fat cat. Um, we probably could talk about this for hours and hours, but we need to be wrapping up this episode. So uh, rather than go any further at this point, maybe maybe we talk further about fat cat evidence preservation at some point in the, the future. But for the time being, I think we put a close on this and, and we land the plane. I hope you have a good week and uh, look forward to our next in this series of podcasts. Yeah, me too. Talk to you again soon, John. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.